All right. Good to see everybody here. A lot of returnees. Hello. Yeah. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Yeah, we're going to think about this topic that's very relevant for not me at all because I'm married. <laughs> no, um, but it's definitely a topic that I spent a good chunk of my young life thinking about and uh, trying to figure out. And uh, this is sort of where you guys are uh, at right now as well. But if you think about it, you think about the history and uh, the whole dating phenomenon, um, do you realize that it's actually a pretty recent phenomenon, this whole dating thing? And by recent, I mean in the view of humanity and uh, human society. We're talking about like the last 150 years, max like 200 years since the Victorian period, if you will. This uh, individual male, female, singles actually on their own volition, one-on-one -on -one meeting one another and uh, just going after the ones they like and asking them out and actually dating outside of uh, the context or authority of family and other obligations, actually individually uh, engaging one another. This is really a relatively recent thing, even though for us living, living now, uh, we've had it all our lives. Uh, and especially regarding uh, just the, um, the way we date nowadays, uh, I think uh, it's due to the sexual revolution that really accelerated uh, much more quickly in the last 50 years since the hippie era, if you will. Um, I mean, think about this. If, if, if you could uh, maybe bring back some of your history lessons and things like that, or the stories you heard from your parents and the grandparents and so forth, where and when, at any point in history, did a society have this much liberty outside of marriage uh, that we do in Western society regarding sexuality and the way individuals engage one another? Um, really, the answer is pretty much almost nowhere, never, outside of uh, sort of a mythified uh, sort of perception of uh, Greco-Roman culture or things like that. So if we're reasonable people, if you think about it, if you, if you, if you have uh, the luxury of thinking about the long trajectory of history, and if you were to think critically, you have to reason that when something changes so, dr so dramatically, uh, so drastically, so rapidly, uh, we should at least, at least say, hmm, what's going on here? We have to at least pause and ponder whether or not this is good for us uh, as individuals as well as as a human society. Uh, is it a good thing? I mean, you know, in the, in the scheme of thousands of years, suddenly in the last 150 years, last 50 years, as a society, we decided to do things dramatically different. What does this mean? Right? And we also can't neglect the fact that uh, social moral norms are often imposed by society at large. And this has to do with what we call the worldview. And worldviews have deep and very wide repercussions uh, on everything in our lives. And so we have to be at least discerning about its many implications. And, and, and if you think about it, some things that worldview or, or philosophy impacts some things are not as critical as other things, right? I mean, uh, food trends, uh, fashion, 
your hobbies are probably not as important as, say, the way we do health and medicine. Um, Long-term relationships. Uh, you know, not everything's of equal value. So I think it's a very sensible thing to make these discernments. I mean, some things we take on very quickly, like technology. And we love the fact that we went from dial-ups to like fast, high-speed, you know, internet. Uh, technology changes all the time. We're constantly updating our phone apps. And, you know, if it's new and supposedly good, then we make the purchase and we bring it in and things like that. So technology is good. Design innovations, that's fine. Like funkier looking, the better, new trends, that's all fine. Um, so new inventions are okay, uh, but not everything is always better because it's different or new. Uh, especially, I think, on today's topic, sex and dating, I think the worldview and social norms have to be thought through, if you will. I mean, there is definitely a perception that Christianity is strict about these things. Well, is it? You know, and, and we are definitely presenting uh, what the Bible has to say, what Christianity has to say about these things. Uh, but let me tell you something, and Asians should know this. Confucianism was strict. Okay? Confucianism is actually a very atheistic philosophy. Uh, in fact, uh, when Buddhist, Buddhism was flourishing at one point in uh, Eastern Asia, uh, once Confucianism came in, uh, that was considered religious and superstitious, and it was ruled out. And Confucianism was the philosophy uh, that was considered rational. It was based on observable realities like binary of genders, hierarchy of parents to children, and hierarchy of social rankings. It was very legalistic. I mean, they kept people in their places, if you will. I mean, super uber realistic, uh, high cost for violating that cultural social norm. And it was not religious at all. But it was a, it was a social norm, it was a system. There are other views as well. Obviously, other religions are very strict on this as, as well when it comes to relationship. Um, Islam and most other religions are very legalistic about sex and dating. Uh, you know, if you ask about it, the answer is no. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Hindu parents have all kinds of very strict reasons about sex and marriage and for all kinds of cultural, spiritual reasons as well. Uh, but... What about the society at large? What is behind today's sexual revolution? Um, we have to also understand that just like other religions and other philosophies, uh, today's sexual revolution is also based on a set of philosophy. Okay, it, didn't, it didn't just come out of nowhere, okay? Uh, I think we could trace back to uh, since the 18th century where there's been a growing trend of a thought regarding social progress. Uh, and, and there was a growing trend of thinking that says progress happens through revolutions and social disruptions. People are writing about these things. Uh, French Revolution was the test case, if you will. And uh, this was the driving force of modernity in the last two, three hundred years. Uh, modernity, in, in the Western society especially, it is based on the concept of rebellion, rejection of traditional uh, meta-narrative, if you will. Anything that was traditional, anything that was long-held, they thought it would be good for the society and its progress 
to debunk that or to kick that away. And, and, and the spin around this type of philosophy is to say that it promotes human freedom, human experiences, expressions, and creativity. But the other side of that, if we were to be honest, because every you know, coin has two sides. So while the spin is that this promotes freedom, the other side, you have uh, cultural revolution and anarchist movements. Uh, people who are writing about these were folks like uh, Marx, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Derrida, and Foucault, and if you know these writers that took social philosophy classes, you'd be familiar with these things uh, or these names. Uh, in, in some parts of the world, usually in the West, uh, it gave birth to very, very violent, uh, so, I, I, I should say more, more of a uh, Eastern European to, to the East, towards Asia. Uh, in these parts, uh, these sort of ideas gave birth to socialism, communism, of Stalin, Lenin, Mussolini, Mao, Pol Pot, etc. And in the West, uh, we had different kinds of anarchism and sexual revolution that's built on top of uh, social democracy that was already there. Uh, often, you know, these ideas are uh, sort of adva advanced militarily and uh, forcefully. Today, what we have uh, post-modernity is a different sort of a modernity, whereas uh, earlier modernity was much more of a, a militant or much more harsher rebellion. I think post-modernity or late modernity is, uh, is where uh, rebellion is tempered with apathy. You know, uh, Earlier modernity said, oh, no to mom, dad, grandpa. You know, like, no, I won't do anything you're doing. And it, it, had this, it was a rebel without a cause or with whatever cause they made up. Today, it's more of, uh, seebs, <laughs> can't be bothered, whatever works. So today's modernity, or today's uh, post-modernity, is much, is much more of uh, a pragmatist modernity. It's also a very hedonistic, whatever feels good, whatever works for me. So it's hedonistic, it's pragmatic. And, and, and today's society really just benefits from whatever the world has to offer, as long as it's, it's immediate and it's gratifying and uh, they just like it, you know? But here's the thing. When anything and everything under the sky is allowed and possible, um, does it necessarily give us direction and clarity? On one hand, maybe it feels like freedom, but also, on the other hand, um, that's just a lot of options, you know? Uh, it's also a climate that produces confusion and disorientation as well. So what we need to be asking is, are we any happier? Are women truly indeed more empowered and are better off? Uh, is the society, humanity, families indeed flourishing and are we better off? What do you think? What does your worldview tell you? And how does your philosophy and worldview guiding you? Do you have one? Is there a guiding principle for thinking through and behaving the way you do? Like, what's, what's driving you? Well, what we want to share is uh, from a, a biblical and Christian perspective. And our, however you want to uh, view it, a traditional, old, narrow. Uh, but our honest presentation is that uh, the Bible says God created people male, female, and in fact, because he did that, he's, he really is the author of sex. You know, uh, it's his ideal in the first place. 
And in fact, because he made it, he knows how it works and how it best serves people. And in fact, what Bible presents regarding the topic of sex and dating is that following God's design and instruction is actually good for human thriving. And um, on this topic, um, there's only one kind of sexually intimate male-female relationship that God sanctioned and blessed, and that's called marriage. And, and outside of marriages, the rest of the people are called singles. Okay. I, I don't know if I can find the word single uh, in the Bible. I think it's more just unwed. Uh, but some people might be as, asking or you're thinking, especially those who are in relationship, what about those who are dating? Well, let me just repeat myself, okay? Outside of marriage, all the rest are called singles. If you're not married, you're single, okay? Uh, yeah, even if you have boyfriend, girlfriend, you're, you're single. Now, think about this. Um, what if you can, what if you can taste great restaurant meals and have all of it as much as you want before you have to commit to pay for it? Then after you had that meal, the question is, are you still willing to pay for it? Would you? Okay. And, and the point of this is that you can't just have all the taste without commitment. Why? It's not because of a biblical strict rule, okay? It's practical. Think about this. If restaurants gave you constant free meals, that would be great for a little bit, maybe for a promotional period. Uh, but that's just not sustainable, right? As a whole, as a, as a philosophy. It's just not sustainable because they would soon run out of money and they have to close. Then where's your next meal coming from? If people share all the sexual experiences and none of the other life responsibilities, where would our societies be? Or where would our society be? I, I want you to just take this time to think the big picture, not just what's convenient for you or you know, where your heart's leading you. But you know, for once, let's just be responsible people and think about not just our own lives and wherever our heart's leading uh, or other parts are leading, but really think about the bigger picture as a society and as people. Let's think about that. Um, if we just do whatever we want all the time, the way the society does it, um, will people ever have children? And for what? I mean, it, this is a real issue. I mean, there's some countries with declining birth rate and negative population growth. And if we do have them, um, who would raise them? You know, the father, no, then always moms, adoption, the social system, what? Um, and, and how? What would be the, the, uh, the child-raising ideology, philosophy, and context in which these new human individuals are brought up in society? What's, what's predicating uh, their education and their moral character development? Because that's going to shape future societies. What about long-term relational happiness and your own emotional connectedness and your, your mental health as individuals or as a society of individuals? What about those things? Um, these are really very obvious, fundamental social humanity questions uh, that are actually in flux today. Uh, modern societies are plagued with these questions. Okay. But guess what? Marriage is actually God's sustainable plan. Now, here's a myth. Here's a myth that says, 
well, you know, Christianity is, uh, uh, is fraud because there's, there are as many divorced in Christian marriages as there are in any marriages society-wide. Well, guess what? That's not entirely true. It's kind of true, but it's not. It's true in that the people uh, who are either staying in marriage or divorcing, often as a society, people tend to tick religious affiliation boxes, and often uh, it's ticked by a lot of the nominal Christians, uh, social cultural Christians, just because you've been to church once or your grandfather used to be a Christian or something. So, uh, so that's the, the, those statistics really reflect uh, the statistics of the whole society, uh, society as a whole. Uh, but that opinion, that view, is actually not true in that uh, when we survey those who regularly attend church, uh, take faith seriously, take, take the Bible seriously, and who worship regularly, both corporately and as a couple, as a family, the divorce rate is not zero, but the divorce rate is dramatically uh, reduced to less than a single digit, and that's, that's uh, church survey uh, reality. In fact, there is a surprisingly high percentage of actual happiness in these genuine Christian marriages that practice sacrificial love and submission to one another. Because uh, relationship's hard. And, and, you know, the same person you marry don't stay the same person next year, 10 years from now, 20 years. We're evolving. We're, we're changing people. And unless we're constantly deferring to one another and really living to serve one another, there's no way we can go this way. It, it's always going to be like this. Uh, but the principles in the scriptures really guide us to not just live for ourselves, but ask ourselves, how can I at my cost serve the other person? And the relationship that's predicated on that is different. And this is really what God had in mind, uh, because we're also very bonding people emotionally. So when Christians date, we really should date with marriage in view. Uh, and um, that doesn't mean that just because two Christians date, it's going to be a Christian dating or a Christian relationship. It's how you date, how you uh, have that relationship that, that's, that's really important. Um, I don't want to go too much into how a Christian dates, but I'll tell you what, uh, you know, God also made us normal, healthy, biological people, and it's very natural when two people are attracted to each other, you start dating. There's going to be uh, attraction, uh, sexual urges. And that's just normal. This is why God wants them to get married and have a family, you know. But to be in a dating, this, this amoebic, ambiguous situation where you're neither entirely single, as in you're, you don't have a relationship, and you're not married uh, officially, th this thing is, what is this? The rules of engagement is not set in stone, so obviously it's a very tumultuous sort of a place. Uh, but in that context, uh, to, to violate the design for a monogamous, a committed relationship and actually uh, spread yourself thin, uh, is ultimately it's not good for you. Um, in fact, in the Bible, it says the sexual sin is unique sin because of this body-spirit connection. Because we're not robots. You know, you can't act and, and uh, uh, give yourself physically in one place, especially in something as intimate as sex, and then turn around and switch that off and not think about it, not feel about it, not let it impact, impact you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 16, uh, 16 through 20, it says this, don't you know he who's joined to a prostitute? Now, prostitute 
example uh, is, on one hand, an extreme example, but at the same time, in a biblical time, in a biblical context, anybody who's outside freely having sex with someone who's not their spouse was actually, in fact, a prostitute. So that's the illustration it's giving. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what this is, what this is, this is saying is that internal injuries are actually more fatal than external. Uh, you know the term insidious? Uh, it, it refers literally to the unseen inside problems that fester. So we might pretend, you know, that's uh, just a thing, it's just pleasure, it's just, I'm just having fun. We might pretend it's okay. But really, loose sexual experiences are ultimately very unfulfilling. Um, and, and, and really, uh, damages our uh, propensity for a truly intimate, deep, loving, committed relationships. Uh, the Bible considers sexual purity very, very important because it impacts our spiritual posture and perspective about things. It really clouds us because it is so em emotionally impactful. And if you say uh, it, it's, it doesn't, then I don't know if that's really honest. And I don't know if uh, that's honest with our humanity. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 8 is worth reading. Uh, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So it's about your control issue too. Not in the passion of lust like uh, the Gentiles who do not know God, uh, that no one trans transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, regards, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Uh, God actually cares a lot about sex, because he knows how impactful that is for you, because God designed you to be a sexual person. Sex is not a bad thing. It's God's idea, and in fact, it was a gift to us. And rightly handled, it cleaves us to our partner in a way where it creates a great bond um, that, that commits one another to helping each other in life. You know, uh, So he wants us to manage that well. And when it's not managed well, there's so much of uh, ideology and personality and emotional attachment with whoever you're, you're with. Uh, it really impacts you. It impacts your perspective. And it clouds you. Um, so it's an, it's an insidious sin. But here's the thing. Uh, like all other sins, uh, there is absolute forgiveness for sexual sins as well. doesn't matter if it was 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or, or, or yesterday, or just before you got here. Um, for Christians, there's no place called the point of no return. You see? And, and this, is, this is how generous and, and kind our God is. Because what, what He wants to do is not to be punitive towards your past behaviors, but he wants to set you up for the future. And he wants you to recognize who is your best guiding life giver, and it's the Lord. And he wants what's best for you. 
And repentance really means uh, saying, okay, I had it wrong. God, you have it right because you're the designer. I'm going to go with your plan. And there's no condemnation in that. And when you repent, he, he forgives you. So how do we date? Um, this is where the biblical idea is revolutionary or really uh, countercultural to the max. Okay? Um, because we're single and not married, we're told that as singles, Christians have a different perspective regarding the opposite sex. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, it says, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, and older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So how do we, how do we date? Well, we date with marriage in view, but you conduct yourselves in a way that's honorable so that until that person is actually your husband and wife, uh, you see that person as a brother or sister. Now, like, what, what would you do with your sister? <laughs> what would you do with your brother? You know, if you think about what you might do in a dating context and you liken that to what you might do to your brother or sister, biological brother or sister, that's pretty gross, right? <laughs> but, but that's how you keep each other pure. Uh, but also, that's really difficult, especially nowadays. Especially, it was not that difficult before. It really wasn't. I mean, the lust was there, but there was social rubric that prevented you from doing that. Sure, you lusted across the wall, checking her out, but you didn't have your own car, have your own place, and parents that leave you alone. But today, it's difficult. So uh, just like before, we need, a, we need accountability. We can't even trust ourselves. In fact, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any, any of you in any." lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Even if you think, oh, I can handle it, you know, um, you don't realize how uh, insidious, deceitful sin is. Uh, even if you're Christians going out, often it's just a standard perception that when two Christians even are dating for a long period, without really a marriage plan, and it just drags on, uh, they're probably having sex. Because there's just a lot of freedom, and there's very little accountability. You need accountability. And uh, in in uni ministries and single ministries that, you know, I I have the privilege of speaking into, uh, I often advise, guys, if you don't have a plan to, you know, pull out the ring in a couple of years' time, like, you're not man enough to start dating. And, and, and women, if you've been dating for a while, you have to wonder, when, when is the ring ever going to come? You know? Uh, to date perpetually without a plan is just setting up for a disappointment, uh, enough disappointment to be able to even break up and walk away and look for another person to have a fling with. And it's so easy to do that nowadays. Uh, by all means, the Bible says, if you're burning, get married. 1 Corinthians 7 uh, has all kinds of helpful dating advices, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, do marry and ha- have plans to get married. But at the same time, uh, not everybody has to be married. You know, your singleness is wonderful and valuable as well. I won't go into whole how to find the right person and the meaning of singlehood and all that stuff. But let me just close with this, okay? I've already gone long enough. Um, in Christianity, our ultimate is uh, Christ. And we have to remember that, that Jesus was a celibate Savior. 
He was an unmarried, childless, and yet the father of all creation. Before Christ was born, there's this wonderful Isaiah uh, pr- uh, prophecy that he who comes is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And, and Christ is here to restore our humanity and point us, point us to the ultimate reality in heaven. And, but at the same time, we don't have to wait to heaven to start tasting the goodness of that redemption. Uh, but we can, we can experience that in following Christ and his word. And even though it is so countercultural and so different, this sustaining value and worldview actually sustained and helped the society all these thousands of years. We have to, th- we have to think critical about what, what's happening to us right now. And can I just go along with that? And is that good for me? I think the biblical view offers an option. And um, you don't have to take it on, but if you believe him and believe the word, uh, then, then do commit to following that. And if you have any questions about um, whether this, all this stuff is even real and have other questions related to this, then please feel free to talk to our associates, myself, and we'd be happy to dialogue about these. Can the associates raise their hands? City Sanctum Associates. Uh, yeah, we're here to just serve you and uh, do this life journey with you and um, just answer some questions about Christianity and be willing to even read the Bible with you here outside. Uh, so, um, yeah, let, let's have a chat about some of these things as well. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for being the Lord of life and God of creation. Uh, you made us so you know exactly how we work. Just like car designers know how a car works. Lord, you know how life works, and we know that our thriving and flourishing uh, is best anchored in your truth. So, uh, Lord, guide us. Uh, Lord, it's so easy to be swept away by the many frequent drastic changes that we experience, uh, but help us to think critically whether or not these things are good for us. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.